Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American rock musician, songwriter, author and record producer. It is Frank Sassage, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. One time member of, or the founder member of Blue Ash but has also played guitar with such people as Stiff Batters and also has been in a lot of other bands called the Deadbeat Poets and uh, Club Wow. But anyway, you'll find out more about everything about Frank and much more. So this is the interview, so after seven minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Frank, it's over to you. The, the really big one was the Beatles being on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, early 64. Uh, before that, I liked Buddy Holly and um, I liked uh, Elvis when I was a kid. My first record I ever bought was Elvis. Um, Marie's the name is Latest Flame and Little Sister, dual sided uh, single, which was a great record. But the, those were my first real um, influences there. And then when the Beatles came, that's all I wanted to do was be in the band. So yes. I uh, started playing harmony. Yeah. Yeah, because I know, I mean, you're a little bit, you're a little bit younger than, there was Lemmy and uh, David Bowie, who were both born in 1947. And they, and whenever they got um, asked about, you know, what their musical kind of moment was, or that, that kind of person who sort of made everything happen for them, it was always Little Richard. And then it was kind of Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and and Eddie Cochran. And so you're you're probably a little bit um, just behind those guys, aren't you? Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I remember always, you know, liking, you know, Chuck Berry or, or Buddy Holly, but I was never really into it. I was into more sports when I was 10 years older in the late 50s and everything. But with the Beatles coming in February of 64 and the British invasion, that was it. That completely it for me. I yes. mean, the animal bones and everybody, the Hollies, everybody like that. That's so all I did was. Yeah, records and listen to them. So. <laughs> <laughs> so look, so when, so what, did you have a, was that a musical family you had? Were your par- either parents kind of into into any well, type of music? Well, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, he, he had a band in the 1920s. They were Croatian immigrants from the Austria-Hungary Empire. And my uncle Jack, who gave me my first guitar, it was a country and Western star around here. He had his own radio program in the Midwest and opened for a lot of the, uh, um, uh, big stars that came through, like Gene Autry and and all those kind of people in the 30s and late 40s. When the war started, he 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 joined the army and he ended up in uh, uh, General Patton's army and fought in every almost every battle from North Africa to invading uh, Germany and managed to survive. So he he was a pretty cool guy and he gave me my first guitar when I was young. Oh, that's amazing because I I come yeah. from. For being in the UK and sort of East Anglia, we uh, this is kind of the bit which is closest to Europe, um, yeah. Norfolk and Suffolk. We we sort of got, I don't know, with something like 20, 30 aerodromes during the Second World War. So there was this kind of thing called the, the Friendly Invasion, where all these Americans came over and um, stayed around East Anglia. So there's a lot of stories from my, especially my dad's generation, because he was a young boy there, of seeing, you know, suddenly this village, which was very small, having two, 3,000 Americans coming in. And uh, all, it was it was kind of a quite a transformational time. So did was your, was that relative, was he based in East Anglia at all, or did he just go straight into Europe? 
No, he may have. He was he was um, um, straight into Africa and then Sicily and Italy, but then went to France too. So he might have been in England. I'm not sure if he was. And then uh, he was in the Battle of the Bulge and then the invasion of Germany too. My wife's uncle Ed was stationed in England. He he was a navigator on a bomber. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's fantastic! So he probably yeah. flew one of those liberators or yes, yeah, he did. He flew like 27 missions. Right. That's yeah. amazing. And, and he would never go on an airplane after that when he came home here. Nicest guy in the world, the calmest guy, funniest guy. But he, when he'd go on a vacation to California or something, he would never take an airplane. He'd take the train because I'm never getting in a plane again. <laughs> no. Well, probably if you'd done 20-odd yeah. missions kind of flying over Europe being bombed, it was probably enough, wasn't it? You probably Because James, James Stewart, famous for, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and various other things, he was based in a – aerodrome which was like i don't know 15 miles south of norwich so he he flew about yeah. 90 missions so it was kind of interesting i think james cagney um was also in east anglia as well so um yeah so it's it's an interesting kind of moment anyway it's not really but <laughs> jimmy Stewart operate around here in western pennsylvania where i'm from in indiana pennsylvania and his father always had his oscar in the window of his hardware store <laughs> he's from area right here and he's he's the only he's the soldier he started out as a private and ended up as a brigadier general the quickest anyone ever went through the ranks in, in the united states army jim stewart fantastic there you go yeah so 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 as, as we were trucking going back to the 60s um yeah so we you know i was obviously born in 1964 when the beatles started so so when you we got to that great period which was like 1967 that was the summer of love wasn't it where where there was this sort of the great explosion of psychedelia and everybody was optimistic and things were still good and there was the in the uk there was the 14-hour technicolor dream which was at the alley pally with people like pink floyd and and the um, Arthur Brown, I think he was at every event, Arthur Brown. But you yeah. had the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco in January. Did you, at that stage, had you sort of picked up the the kind of counterculture and started to become sort of veering towards that world of hippiedom? Or were you more into the world of garage punk? Oh, sure. We picked that up, too. We, we liked the punk stuff, too. Um, my songwriting partner, Bill Bartlett in, in um, uh, Blue Ash, he was 16 years old. We were both 16 years old in the summer of 67. But he was on vacation with his parents out in California. And they let him go to the uh, Monterey Pop Festival. <laughs> so he was actually at the Monterey Pop Festival. So that, that was a big influence on him. His influences were always more West Coast stuff like Moby Grape or, um, you know, uh, the Bo Brummels, the Birds and things like that. Uh, Buffalo Springfield. And mine were more British things. I was always the Liverpool bands, the Manchester bands, uh, you know, that kind of thing was for me. Yes. And did you, and when you got the guitar, did it sort of, you obviously had some quite good role models around. Did you get a lot of kind of help and um, assistance and direction of, of sort of how to master the instrument, so to speak? Well, I, I never took any lessons, but my best friend who we started our first band together could always play and he was fairly proficient. So he taught me a lot of things like that. Um, also, um, we would go see bands. Bands were everywhere. I mean, every weekend there would be two live bands at every venue, teen venue. We would just sit there and, and just watch the, them do the licks and everything and pick up what we could from that and learn from records too. But what, it was hard from records or sheet music because they never had 
the proper keys in it. It was always, if it was a song that was in E, they would have it in like C sharp or something like that. And so we would never learn it right. But we used to take the records and slow them down if it was a 45 to 33, so we could pick out the, the notes in a different key and then play them in the other key. So that's how we learned the guitar solos. Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a very cunning idea, actually. Did you, when you got to 16, did you leave school at that stage or did you go on to college? I, 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 I left in my, my last year of high school. I was thrown out for having long hair first day of school. So I I, I never completed my last year. So I, I left when I was 18. Blimey. That's a bit like a Crosby, Stills and Nash uh, record, isn't it, really? I guess I uh, guess yeah. I guess long hair was quite a, a sim, symbolic kind of uh, gesture, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. What we did in the last year as we were in school, we would wear short haired wigs and put our hair up. We learned that from some guys in a band in Ohio and put your hair up underneath when the school found out about it, they got really mad and then, then threw us up. But we had already started Blue Ash. So when we were playing gigs and, you know, I was making, you know, more money than my father was making in the steel mill. So uh, we just went with it from then, then on. That was it. <laughs> yes. And that was a kind of a no brainer. So when you started Blue Ash, which was 1960, 69, where, where, where the, the, the sort of, it was the end, the sixties was slightly coming to an, a bit of an end. What was it like for you seeing people at that stage, even though you're, you're sort of coming, you know, of almost adulthood and at the same time, you know, there'd been the, the kind of, I suppose, Woodstock, which it, it filmed well, but it was, a, I wouldn't have wanted to go because it sounded like a yeah. nightmare. And then, you, you know, we had the Charles Manson murders and then the death of Hendrix, Joplin and, and um, also Morrison as well from The Doors and before that, Brian Jones. So what was it like, the mood for you at sort of 60, 69, 70 as, as this kind of decade changed? Well, it, it, it was crazy because about two weeks before Woodstock, they had a thing called the Atlantic City Pop Festival and it had most of the same people on there. And it only had 200,000 people. But at the time, it was the biggest festival of its kind. But when Woodstock came, nobody ever talks about it anymore. And it was at a racetrack. And we went down there and uh, we got a lot of ideas to start the band from there. But the one thing we didn't do, want to do was be a jam band. All of a sudden, it was there was a lot of... A jamming and noodling and um things like that we we just weren't into that we still love the stuff when we were you know 14 years old like uh you know the beatles and the and, and the stones uh yardbirds things like that um the kinks especially we were he heavily influenced by the kinks so we started writing our own songs but in that kind of favor we still did about half covers but even when we started we were doing half originals which was we're very odd for a, a band of uh, 17, 18 year olds. Yeah. You know? Yes. Because on your first album, No More, No Less, you do cover Any Time At All, which was the first track on side two, don't you? Which is obviously um, yeah. a family favorite. And also Dusty Old Fairgrounds with Bob Dylan. But then everything yeah. else is, is just about sort of original material, isn't it, at that stage? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, I mean, because you were based in Ohio at this stage and you, you, the, the album was recorded in Peppermint Studios, Youngstown. I mean, did did that kind of, because obviously there's still kind of a bit of a rock Im image that you have. In, in the UK, obviously, there was the kind of the birth or the kind of growth of glam rock. What was that mm -hmm. kind of the trans, you know, as, as I realised that, Every five years, there's a slightly new kind of musical genre that starts, or new new musical kind of groove. Did it did it feel tricky maneuvering out of kind of the the kind of the '60s and that kind of psychedelic 
hippie world into another decade with a slightly different kind of soundtrack of people like, I don't know, David Bowie and T-Rex. Yeah, yeah, it it was different. But um, the Midwest where we live in the Cleveland area and everything, it's a real open minded area. So you could get up uh, and everybody loved music. So you could make your own kind of an audience there. I mean, there would be people that would be heavy metal bands or jam bands or even funk or soul bands playing at the same clubs that we would play we would be on a thursday night they would be on another night so we all had our own audiences and and people just love the music here um we started making demos at peppermint in the summer of 1972 they signed us to a, a production contract and uh we made our first demos did about a half a dozen of them they sent them out to um all all kinds of labels, but four labels wanted to sign us up, which was amazing to us. We couldn't believe it, you know. Uh, Polydor, um, MGM, Mercury, and I think uh, Metro Media, which was a big label back then. Merv Griffin, the TV star, used to own that. But uh, we got signed to Mercury Records by uh, Paul Nelson, who also signed the New York Dolls. We were his only two signings, and he eventually got let go because of that, <laughs> that because we were so different. Else, but and Paul was a great guy. He's the one that gave us us the old fairgrounds. If you've ever seen Bob Dylan's uh, um, the movie Martin Scorsese did about him, No mm. Direction Home, Paul's they interview him about. He went to school with Dylan in Minnesota, and Dylan had stolen all his albums. He talks about it in the movie. They came in and that and and they were good friends all all through you know his career and everything so and so he had that tape of dusty old fairgrounds from somewhere and he gave this and we just loved it and uh recorded it and did Excellent. it kind of like the who would do it yeah yeah i mean it was i i was just gonna say he says job in his pen um yes so at that stage because because obviously the you know, Mercury Records sort of sign you. And I remember talking to JJ French from Twisted Sister. And I mean, they were one of those bands who never got signed for about 10 years, but they would be playing like once or twice a night, every night. You know, so they played hundreds of gigs. You you were also one of those bands who played constantly yeah. as well. We played 250 to 300 gigs a year for three years before we got signed to Mercury throughout the Midwest and Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio. I mean, there were just a ton of places to play and we were a very good live band. So everybody always wanted to, to book us. Sometimes we play three gigs a day. You know, we were always on the road, never home, but that's how we got our chops. And it, it, you're right about Twisted Sister. There was circuits around there. People did that. Raspberries were the same way. They played the same circuits we did at that time. Yes. So we, we we play for years and made a good living at it, actually, really. I would imagine, though, though your yeah. hearing must have been a bit hit and miss and you must have been shattered. Oh, but... yeah. <laughs> People play so four 40-minute sets a night, so that was grueling, especially if you were a drummer. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. Yeah. I've, every every drummer I've interviewed is is kind of got tinnitus, <laughs> so um, that's no that's no fun, is it really? But you were touring with people like Iggy Pop and the Stooges, Stooges, weren't you? And also um, Aerosmith and Ted Nugent. So you you would obviously were part of that kind of scene and and part of that kind of community of kind of quite rocking bands, weren't you? Did you kind I of get sort of yeah, did you sometimes struggle with what direction to go to once that first album came out? No, not not really. We were we had our own niche, and then there were a few other bands that were like us, like Raspberries or 
or blue ash or even uh you know they would always lump us in reviewers with you know bad finger there were a half a dozen of them that were like that that were like kind of 60s throwback pop guys but we always loved being in that and we could pretty much go over well everywhere we went except uh the only time we ever got booed or stuff thrown at us is we played in new jersey at a place called the joint in the woods for commander cody and the lost planet airman excellent <laughs> remember them yeah right. come on come and, on and the place filled with redneck people and we got on stage and they just started throwing stuff at us they they weren't no no mood for the uh blue ash uh power pop but our singer jim did one of the greatest things i've ever seen on stage he grabbed a beer bottle that was thrown at him in midair and threw it right back in the audience he goes keep throwing him because we're going to throw him back all fucking night he goes I'm sorry, on your show, I didn't know that. But anyway, so that was one of the great, and then they stopped and they kind of liked us, but that's the only time that ever happened. We yeah. were usually pretty good and people liked us, you know, we, we were a likable band. Yes, but then Mercury kind of drops you after that first album. Did that feel a little bit difficult then to sort of pick up the baton and to to work out what to do and where to go next? Yeah, it was. Um, the A&R guys at Mercury, Bud Scapa and Paul Nelson, um, they absolutely loved us and 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 uh, fought for us the whole time. But we had to sell, I think, 25,000 albums to get a second album. And I think we only sold like 19,000. So there was talks about dropping us. They were going to drop us and all this, give us one more single. But um, um, so they gave us one more single. And a lot of people were trying trying to help us even dick clark famous dick clark played it on his american bandstand and pumped it up and everything but they just didn't know what to do with us because we weren't in a niche that they could promote and the promo guys didn't like it so after a huge fight they let us go but then right after that a lot of labels were wanted to sign us we were columbia we went up in new york and auditioned for them uh, rca and uh, emperor records which was owned by nat weiss who was the beatles american lawyer and he had um, the Romantics and he had a jazz label. He wanted to put us up, but something always came up and never went through. So we eventually got signed uh, three years later to Playboy Records uh, out of California and then put our second album out there. Yes. That did much. But once we were in, in the middle of promoting that and doing it, the record label went out of business. You have to pull the plug on it. <laughs> we were lost again. My yeah. God, that's that's yeah, lightning striking twice actually. So, Playboy Records is that all part of the uh, the publishing house as well? Were they just uh, diversifying from their yeah. normal day job? Yep, that was Playboy magazine, movies, uh, um, the ev everything that they did, all the promos they did. They had a huge uh, building on Sunset Strip, a Playboy building. They were huge, you know, and. Uh, we went to California and recorded half the album, half half of it in, in Miami, and uh, it we put out a single and it did really well all through the Midwest and the South and hit number one in like ten different markets. But uh, just as we started going, it they pulled the plug. That was the end of the the uh, uh, thing and kind of disheartened all of us. So that was uh, the end of Blue Ash. We were together about ten years. Yes. Right after that, I started playing with Dead Boys. <laughs> Yeah, so ten the ten year because I've sort of been doing 
um, a show which is kind of mostly the kind of 80s bands and, and most of them have a bit of a five-year narrative some do sort of get to do to 10 years but mostly it is kind of you know form 12 months you know the first single then first album the <clears> tricky <throat> second album possibly third and then they've you know if yeah. they're not if they haven't got any serious cash and they never have any cash they kind of just have enough because the, the dynamics <laughs> of the band was it a big decision to quit the band at that stage or for the band to sort of stop or was it kind of did you all just have the same feeling that it was mass feeling we were just disheartened by it all and we had all been married and kids were coming and everything by that time so i think everybody just kind of wanted to call it quits you know and we you got to realize we've been on the road with each other 300 days a year for 10 years that's a long time for the same four guys yes That's that's, so, that's that's longer than most that's longer than most people's marriages, really, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, it's pretty good, and it's you know at least you can all come to the same agreement. So then, how did you meet Stiff Batters, Baters, and and the Dead Boys? How did that relationship start? Well, I used to go to um, um, teen clubs in the 60s, 66, 67. I was 15 years old, 16 years old. And there used to be places called the Carousel Teen Clubs all around, and they would have bands, and and you, you couldn't be over 18 to go to them. So I, I would uh, I met him at one of those places. And uh, right, and uh, we got became fast friends, and we'd go see bands and everything. And then when Blue Ash started, he, he became a singer in the Mother Goose Band. I used to be in the Mother Goose Band, quit it to start Blue Ash. And then we would always get stiff to open up uh, gigs for us in everything, 1969, 70, 71. So maybe maybe two dozen gigs. So we were always always good friends. So when Blue Ash broke up, he had started the Dead Boys in their first album to come out. And the second one came out after that. And then uh, he wanted to do something different, wanted to do a soul, some solo things. And he... Uh, got a hold of me we went up to uh cleveland and did some demos it's cold outside the last year a few other songs we wrote a couple songs together and then he took them to california with him and played them for greg Shaw. And greg was a huge uh blue ass fan greg owned bomb records and and he signed us up to bomb records and to do his solo album and his singles there so that's how i ended up with him but then again at the same time they were getting the dead boys back together and doing things so they they got me to fill in on bass so i played with them for about a year and a half and we yes. did tours constantly. And the last tour we did was um, we got Brian James from The Damned came over. And then um, uh, he was the second guitar player on the uh, solo stuff for Betas. He did the last tour with us in December of 1980 and 81. So that's after that, I didn't play with Stiff anymore. He went over to, to Britain and started uh, Lords of the New Church. Yes. And the one, so he was living in England then. Yeah, and then there's this kind of bit where he goes to Paris as well, isn't it, in France? And yeah. Um, yeah. that's where it was. What was it like kind of being in a different band with a slightly different sort of um, group of people? Because, you know, the Dead Boys seemed, you know, quite rock and roll, didn't they? they were, they'd been the sort of Johnny Thunders, um, New York Dolls. You know, there was a lot more kind of, there's a lot more junkies, weren't they? So how did yeah. how did how did that sort of you know um, sort of compare to Blue Ash? That was a big change, but it was a nice change because we only played like 40 minutes a night, and you'd go out there and do 10 of your best songs, just slamming them up, rocking it up, half drunk, you know, and, <laughs> and very well. So so it was a fun time touring. That we didn't take it too seriously. Yeah, you know? but Blue Ash, everything was meticulous 
Um, I mean, the harmonies down to the T, we would do everything live and just we could recreate a record. Everything with the dead boys, it was just like the you know, the Vikings had hit Normandy, you know, <laughs> it was when you come into a town, so it was kind of fun in that way, you know. Yes, absolutely. And did you play at, you know, Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and places yeah. like that? Was that all part of the circuit that you were on? Sure, sure. There's a, there's a, uh, a movie out right now called uh, Nightclubbing. It's the, the history of um, uh, punk rock in New York City. It's about Max's Kansas City. And the main guys in it are Alice Cooper and Billy Idol. But there's a clip of me and Stiv playing at that. Max is in it, and uh, my my band, the Deadbeat Poets, have a song in it uh, called Sunglass City. And there's a couple photographs that I took too of Max's back in the time that are in the movie. It's a good film. Uh, Danny Garcia made the film. He's the one that did the Stiv film and the Clash film and uh, um, the uh, Sid Vicious Sex Pistols film too. So he's he, he does a lot of films in that that uh, genre. Yes, well, I, just before Christmas, sometime in the autumn, I did an interview with him and managed to get a, to see a copy okay. of the film. Great guy. But, um, you know, that was quiet. And then over Christmas, I was on Netflix and watched the one with um, um, Steve Batters um, as well. Yeah, 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 I'm in that one as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a ni- it's a nice little movie. I mean, did that feeling, uh, you know, you went from one decade to another with uh, Blue Ash from the 60s to the 70s, and then obviously did the next one from the, the sort of 70s punk world into the 80s. What was, what was that like? Did you ever sort of feel like... God, the 16-year-olds are still 16-year-olds and I'm still another year older. I say that because I used to, I used to go to Glastonbury Festival and there was that point where you get, you started saying to various friends, God, everyone looks so young. And you think, no, they're the same age. We, you know, that's the new, we're the ones who are getting old and they're just the same 16, 18-year-olds turning up to their first ever festival. So I just wondered what it was like as a musician thinking, God, these kids look so young and pasty. Yeah, it, it was it was different. Uh, Jimmy Zero from the Dead Boys and I started formed a band called Club Wow in the eighties, from eighty two to eighty five, and um, we you know tried to make an eighties sound and tried to make a go. We had some good songs and some good videos and everything, but we just couldn't get it going either. I guess we were probably just a little too old for that whole scene, you know, because we were in our thirties by then, you know. So it was like a little bit bit bit. It was a very good band. Um, um, that was me, uh, Jimmy Zero, Billy Sullivan, and Jeff West. And Jeff West ended up playing uh, with the Waldos and different bands like that out of New York. And Billy Sullivan right now is uh, Peter Noon's guitar player in Harmon's Harmon's. He's been touring for, for about the last 20 years now. <laughs> so that's kind of cool in a way, you know. And, and yeah. Peter still plays all over America and makes a great living at it. And Billy's been with him for like at least two decades Excellent. Yes, because I know I see old uh, Peter Noon doing his little thing, looking quite um, yeah. handsome as ever. And and yeah, he yeah. he does a, he does a great version of the man who sold the sold the world, didn't he? David Bowie track. So um, there you have it. Yeah, it's better be done. So yeah, so Club Wow didn't quite take off, but that was kind of eighty eighty two to eighty three, and you released one single, didn't you? Did you ever? That was yeah. Prettiest Girl. Did you ever sort of have an album of material that you released yeah, as it, well? Finally came out in the last couple of years. It's called um, it's a, a CD DVD from um, Australia on um, um, 
zero hour records and it has all the club wild recordings we ever made there's like 18 of them or so and uh live shows so it's, it's pretty cool that's available you can find that on the internet and it's kind of a niche kind of thing but after club wild then i managed a band called the influence then in 1990 when stiv died i just quit the music business i didn't do even pick up a guitar for 13 years yes. i had a young i had a young son so i wanted to bring him up and i became a hockey coach and a little league coach and I got a proper job and then just did that and really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, in 2003, I picked up the guitar, started writing songs again, and um, eventually uh, got a new band together, Deadbeat Poets, and we've had like eight albums out now So since then. So yes. that's pretty cool. They, absolutely. But the Infidels, this was a sort of a band that was around, this was the in the 90s. This was your 90s period, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, late late eighties, uh, eighty five to ninety. Yeah, right. I, I managed and produced their records. Oh, you you were only a producer; you weren't a, a part of the band. No, 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 no. They did a couple of my songs, and but I was a producer and and a co manager of the band. Yes, it was probably. What was it like managing a band after being in a band in a bands for so many years? Did you have some? Did you think, God, I've got some great wisdom here? I know what I'm talking well, about. Yeah. Of course, it's like, you know, going up through the ranks in, in the army or something. You know all the tricks and all the schemes and everything. So you're kind of wise to anything that anybody's pulling on you from the band. So it's kind of actually a, a natural fit to be that, you know, you, you knew what uh, you knew what to expect and you, and you knew how to handle it. So I was yes. actually a pretty good manager. <laughs> Because your book that that you know, I mean, I've, thanks for sending me a, a, a copy. But um, I was just going to say, I mean, it's been beautifully put together. What was that like, sort of going through your whole sort of you know the history of your life, sort of and going through bits? Because obviously there are some very sad moments in it with you know various deaths of musicians and stuff. Yeah. What was what was that process like for you? I just wonder when did you start writing it? Well, I in in um. Uh, 2015, I had a very bad accident and I almost lost my life. And and I uh, they sh had to ship me to Pittsburgh for emergency back surgery, and I almost uh, snapped my spinal cord and everything. So I was in really really bad shape. So um, uh, George Matzkoff from High Voltage Publishing in Australia always wanted me to write a book, and I would always put him off. I I don't have time for it. I got these blue ash reunions and dead because I don't want to do it. And it wouldn't be that interesting anyway. So he kept going on on me. So when I got home from the hospital, he, he emailed me. He goes, okay, you got to recuperate now. You have time to write that book. You're going to do it. So I said, okay. I said, if I can find a, a, a good first line for it, I'll, 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 I'll do it in three months. I'll write a couple pages every day. So then I just started doing it almost chronologically, the little stories of my life and everything, doing it in a conversational type of way. And it seemed to work out really good. So, uh, and we got it done. And it, 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 it's in a second pressing now. It's still available worldwide on Amazon. Barnes & Noble is the big chain here that has it. And, and from uh, high voltage in Australia, you can find it anywhere. So, Yes, your first line, one day in 1970 or 71, my dad, Frank yeah. and I were watching the Ed Sullivan show. There you go. Was that the first, was that literally the yeah, first line you wrote? Line. Yeah, that's the first line, and he goes, "Yeah, it's solving that bastard ruined everything." And I thought that was so funny. And as soon as I thought of that, that's how I could just start the book from there because 
that was the end of my my dad's world and the beginning of mine, you know? <laughs> yes. So 2015 was obviously an anisarebless period for you. Of, of how did yeah. the, what, what was the, you said you nearly snapped your back. What was the incident or accident you had? Well, I, I, I was out cleaning stuff, uh, yard stuff in our backyard, and I felt a sharp pain that threw me right to the ground. I thought, what is this? So I called my wife. I said, you got to take me to the hospital. Something very bad has happened. And I, I went to the hospital and a young doctor, female doctor, about 35 years old. And uh, uh, she goes, I want to run these tests on you. She goes, I have a feeling that this is something very rare, you know, because they were doing all this stuff. And I had a thing called cauda equina syndrome. And it all severed my uh, my spinal cord. And she came back and if she did the test, she goes, um, I have to ship you right away right now to Pittsburgh for emergency surgery or you're not going to make it, you know? And I thought, wow. So she really saved my life. They shipped me to down there, did the surgery. And the doctor down there, he goes, none of us, he goes, would have ever thought of that. He goes, she was fresh out of medical school. And that was in her mind because it's so rare, that condition that would happen like that, you know? And I thought, wow. And it's called cauda equina syndrome. I had never heard of it. No. So she... So they, they patched me up and I, I was okay then. It, it took a while. I had to do a lot of therapy for months and months. So that's when I wrote the book because I was bed bound for, you know, about five or six months. Yeah. So, so what, what, what actually is, is that, or was that, you know, what is the condition? Cause you know, we always it, hear it. It, I had just turned the wrong way or something and it hit, um, I lifted and it started splitting my spinal cord, oh. severing it. Jesus. Yeah, right. and it was just hanging on by a bare thread. That's why they took me to Pittsburgh. It's about 50, 60 miles away for the emergency surgery, right from the emergency room, you know? Crikey, I can, you know, yes, it's it's always kind of curious with these things, isn't it? You never you never know what's going to hit you. And we've, yeah. all had, we've all had various little weird things, but nothing quite as drastic as that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, I, and it, the pain was ungodly, you know? So, and I'm yes. lucky I, you know, I could have died or had paralyzed for life. So at least, well, she saved my life anyway. So that was a good way to write the book then to start to write the book. Yes, that often these things do. So just going back with the deadbeat poets, which you, you sort of brought out, what was the kind of, when you had stopped making music during that sort of period, um, did you miss it at all? Or were you just actually kind of through with it emotionally and spiritually? Yeah, I was not even listening to much stuff then. Um, I, like I said, I spent most of my time with my family. And one day I had a, a, a 1966, the only thing I kept from that era, uh, Gibson 330 guitar. And I picked it up, and with a 13-year-old strings on it, I started playing this riff. And I thought, wow, that's a good riff. And I said, oh, hell no, I'm going to have to write this thing. So I wrote the Stiv Vader's Ghost Tour song they used in Danny's film in the end by... Room full of strangers, deadbeat poets, and then um, I just started going over to my friends Pete Revere, who's in the poets now, and Tom Saylor, and they let me use the studio. I started writing songs like crazy because I haven't written in thirteen years, and then we just started, you know, recording him. And I called my old friend Terry Hartman from Cleveland. He hadn't been doing anything either, and got him in the band. So uh, started the deadbeat poets. I uh, made some recordings i sent them off to bump records and a live records out in california because i didn't know anybody in the business anymore and um uh, patrick from 
Basel from uh, Bump. He goes, he goes, I can't use this here. He goes, but this stuff is great. He goes, I know this label in Japan, they'll probably. I sent him up and 12 uh, hours later, I get an offer of a recording contract. And it just struck me as so ironic because all the years Blue Ash struggled and Club Wow and Infidels to get contracts. I get one over the internet in 12 hours. <laughs> so we took that money, recorded the album, and then put it out in Japan and put it out here. And it just uh, snowballed after that. We've had eight albums out now and toured Europe three times and still yes. have the band done much since COVID, but we're going to put another album out and we're working on a new Blue Ash album out too with uh, Jim Kenzer, the lead singer and I, and the Deadbeat Poets. We have about nine songs done and uh, we'll have that out in 2023. My God, that's Yeah. So so with the Deadbeat Poets in 2008, when when you reformed, this is like you come to the UK to, to play and you play at the International Pop um overthrown festival in liverpool and so did you sort of was this one of the first times you'd been to the uk as you know in a band or had you done much touring before that i had been there in in 1972 with blue ash but just as as a tourist you know we came over and a couple of the guys and hung out for a couple weeks in, in in london and france but that was yeah that was the first time since then that i'd been back to the uk and first time i ever played there so, yes uh, well, and, and- that was a blast you must have been because you you played at the Cavern Club, and I and I see that in the book you also go to St Peter's Church where Paul McCartney first meets John Lennon in 1970, 1957. So that that was quite a, a spiritual kind of you know road down to Damascus or something like that. Yeah, it it, it really really cool because and then I took my wife and and son on tour with me. I did a solo acoustic tour in 2019 and played Liverpool, played three times there again. But I took them out to St. Peter's Church and to Paul McCartney's home and London's home and everything. And they just loved it there. It's fine. It's funny because but all the times I've been in Liverpool, I've actually met different people that knew the Beatles before they were famous and everything. And just the funny stories they had about them is, is so funny because they just consider them like the local kids, the local lads, you know. Yes. <laughs> and it's just so funny some of the things they'll tell you, you know. Did you, so. I'm, and I'm sure you did because it was on Disney and it probably still is, but the eight-hour, you know, um, a film about the Beatles making their kind of last album together. Did you, did, I just wondered if you'd watched that and, and what your feelings were about, about seeing them in that process of four people getting back together in a studio sort of with nothing planned and just to put an album out. Did did you sort of have a sort of merry time sort of viewing all that, that, that footage? Oh, I, I love that show. I, I've watched it a couple of times now, but there, there's uh, there's one bit that, that, that Paul says to John during, he goes, well, what songs do you have, John? And John goes, I don't have any, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> doing an album, don't you? He goes, and you do know, Paul, he goes, I always come through. So, <laughs> But I have none now. I thought that was so funny because I've been in that position many times before like that and there's paul of course he's got a half a dozen of them in the can already you know he's always ready but it, it just it, it was such a band thing and i really loved it i i, I really love that i'm glad they put that out it, it's it's way better than the let it be movie was yes <laughs> I, there, there was another lovely bit with the producer hugh 
Hugh Johns, I think it was Hugh Johns, not Hugh Jones. But when he was talking about, you know, getting some of the more material because they still hadn't got enough, and he, and he sort of asked, I suppose it was George, wasn't he? He said, um, what's that song about the long winding road or wrong, long, long road? And I'm thinking, God, that's that's one of the classic songs of all time. And, and there they are still sort of having yeah. to sort of slightly sort of mould it into some sort of finished shape for us to to consume 60 plus years or 50 plus years later. I just I just found that whole process quite stunning, how they just were relatively relaxed sort of putting this together without any any kind of like angst thinking we can't do it. You know, it's like we are going to do it. It'll yeah. be fine. Don't worry about it. I, yes. They just had that inner confidence that they knew they could pull it off because they did it so many times, you know. But yeah, yes. that, that's that's a wonderful movie. It was. Uh, it was. I, yeah. And I was just going to say, with with um, with the band, is it the case then that you're individually sort of scattered around America and you just sort of ping files to each other and then occasionally get together to perform or practice together? No, no. With right now with the Blue Ash, it's just me and Jim Kenzerin and the Debbie Poets. We're all located within 15 miles of each other. That so, is so handy. <laughs> and, and Pete, who is the lead guitarist, owns the studio, and he's the engineer and the producer of all the records, too. So, I mean, we have it made here to do that so we can get together and do stuff. Yes. Fairly. Yeah. Are you sort of champion at the bit at the moment, sort of wanting to get back and, and to get these two projects going again? Oh, yeah. I, I haven't... Uh, Done anything. I did a solo tour in um, December of 2019, and I had been to the UK before that. So I hadn't done anything with the bands be, uh, until before that. Then COVID hit, and everything pretty much shut down around here. So I've only done one gig. I did one last summer, and that was fun in Sandusky, Ohio. But I'm itching at the bit to go out and, and do some solo stuff again. And I really want to get the Blue Ash and Club Wild Things out by midsummer, and then go out and tour with that at least one more time. That'll be a lot of fun, I think. I've got yes. a couple labels interested in the blue ash thing, so I think it'll it'll be a a, a good thing. And it's it's the, I think it's the best music we've ever done. So, and Jim's you know we're seventy years old. I'm seventy one, and uh, he, he still sings like he did when he was eighteen. So, yes, and we've been we were fifteen years old, so that's kind of fun, you know. That's an amazing relationship with the book, which which is kind of fascinating. You've got some brilliant pictures in there. Have you had any feelings or thoughts about adding any more another chapter to it? As Because that one obviously finished eight years ago, which is kind of bizarre how quickly time goes. I just wondered if you're thinking it could get one day another kind of reprint, but this time with an extra bonus chapter to uh, take the story up to the current day. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about that, actually, and maybe even writing another one. Uh, we, I started writing stories in December and posting them on, on Facebook, and somebody said, you should do another book. And I thought about it, so I just started get, outlining chapters and stuff. So I've got I got some really good ideas. So either extending it, like you said, with that and more pictures and everything, or doing a second volume. But I think I'd love to do that. So as I get done with all the... Uh, the Blue Ash and um, Debbie Poets things. I think I, I'll, I'll really do that. Yes. It'll be a nice uh, legacy for the band and for me too. And um, you got it, it'll, it'll be. A I was going to say we all love archiving. Archiving is everything when you get to a certain age. It's, it's quite nice uh, to get things tidied, isn't it? Really, let's face it. Yeah. 
So with oh. the with, with the book, because the photographs are fantastic and and interesting, but there's there's the last ones in that middle section, which are kind of quite an odd photograph. This is kind of Ray Robinson, the Green Man. What is the story with that? that those two pictures. Ray Robinson is a legendary character here in Western Pennsylvania. I first met him when I was 16 years old. We had always heard about him, and people would drive down to um, Beaver Falls or Compo PA to see him. He would only come out at night. He was, um, if you look it up on Google, you can actually, they actually have a Wikipedia page on him. He was trying to, uh, he was born in 1910, and in 1919, when he's 19, nine years old, he was trying to see a bird's nest up, up underneath a, 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 a train trestle, and he got into some high-powered um, uh, lines there, electrical lines. And, you know, back then they didn't have the, the electric under control like they did now, and it blew his face off and blew him out of there. Should have killed him. He spent years in the hospital, but survived. That was all from an accident. He was the nicest guy in the world. We would bring him beer and cigarettes, but he wouldn't go out in the daytime because he would frighten people and kids would scream and women would scream. So I became friends with him when I was a teenager, bringing things down there. And then once the band started, I wasn't around that much anymore because I was on the road and everything. And he died in, in 1990, in, uh, 85 rather, I'm sorry. And then when I started writing songs again, I just started <clears throat> writing about growing up in this area and everything. And he came to mind. And I had to write that song. So that's pretty much a true story about going down there and and uh, uh, talking to him and about, about him and everything. So a uh, pretty wild guy. But he was a cool guy. Really, really friendly. Real nice. Yes. God, what story. <laughs> Yes, that's um, that's quite sort of something. Yes, these childhood accidents that sometimes happen, mostly with bad, you know, fatal consequences. But um, blimey, had his face blown off. Yeah, I saw that photograph. I couldn't quite work out what the what the story was behind it actually. So, um, yes, that is grim. That is rather grim, isn't it? So, if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen year old self starting out in 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 this kind of interesting world, is there any little bit of advice or any kind of feedback or kind of direction you would have said, you know, that you would have told yourself, even if that person ignored you. I just wondered what kind of some of the main lessons were that you've uh, discovered from, from doing this business of being alive. Yeah. Well, I, I probably would have stayed in school, but in, in the long run now, it, it doesn't seem to have hurt me much. I I've had a great life. I have a great wife, great family. I've, I've never longed for anything, you know, money was because I always had, I always got by. So, I mean, I can't complain about anything. I, I had a really good time. I think I've had more laughs than any man uh, has ever been entitled to. I mean, I was on the road with some of the funniest people in the world, Jim Kenzer, Steve Vaders, uh, Jimmy Zero, who I just talked to yesterday for a couple hours on the phone. Maybe one of the funniest guys in the world. Just absolute raucous comedians uh, i mean we would gut laugh on the road constantly because they were just so funny you know yes nice so i'm I, I have some, had some great friends so i can't i can't complain and that is the main thing that was me in conversation with frank sassage talking about his life in music this has been the c86 show i'm david eastall if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.